Here in the love of Christ we stand, we just sang it out, right? If you are one of the people in this room today who is found in Christ, he is your Savior, can you just say amen this morning? Amen. amen. Praise be to God. I'm so glad to worship with my church family this morning. I loved worshiping with the worship team, both services. Some of you guys just need to come to both services because it's good every time. And uh, I love worshiping with the church family. Um, hey, look, some of you guys may have come in today and uh, this morning, some of you are like, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. You know, I came in ready to worship and hear from God's word. Others of you may have come in a little bit, a uh, little bit groggy, a little bit sleepy. Uh, I want to say a special welcome this morning to every one of you who came in groggy and sleepy this morning because today I get to preach from a passage that talks about the first guy who ever fell asleep in church, all right? So it's going to be awesome, all right? If you have your Bible, you can take it up and open it up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be today. So um, just want to reiterate what Phil said earlier. If you are new with us today, uh, especially if this is your, maybe your first time in church ever or your first time in church in a while, um, I hope that you find the family of God to be home for you. I hope that you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior if you don't already. And if you do and when you do, that you will find that being with the family of God is like being home. Um, you know, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to gather with you guys. We are a church that really exists to help people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ, people who know him and make him known in the world. That's why we're here as a church. Um, we're glad you're here as a church. Thank you for joining us today. You are joining us in our 48th study through the book of Acts. And so today we're going to be picking up in the book of Acts, chapter 20, Acts chapter 20. Um, now, Acts is a historical narrative. It, it tells us the story of the early church. It tells us what God was doing in the disciples and in their lives and ministries uh, right after the time of Jesus' resurrection. So by the time that we get to Acts chapter 20, a lot of very, a lot of very important things have occurred in, in church history. Jesus Christ has been crucified, buried, and risen again for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have new life in him. So Christ has resurrected. Uh, he has sent his, his Holy Spirit to empower his disciples to carry out his mission. He told them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, teaching them to obey that all Jesus had commanded. And uh, he said he was gonna send his Holy Spirit to be empowering them on that mission as they were his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so as we've read the book of Acts, what we've seen is these apostles are, are in the power of the Holy Spirit, living out that mission. They're carrying out that mission. They've taken the gospel from Jerusalem, where it was mainly kind of the center of Jewish life, out to the regions surrounding where there were some Jews, some Gentiles, and even to what the scripture calls the ends of the earth, mainly Gentile, non-Jewish regions. Um, this expansion of the gospel has mainly been accomplished through the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul um, has completed two missionary journeys by the time we get to Acts 20. Here in Acts 20, he's partially, um, you know, through his third missionary journey. He actually, we left off last week with uh, chapter 19 where Paul was in the city of Ephesus. And in Ephesus, a riot broke out. Um, it's, it's where we saw that, that Paul and his friends were basically, uh, you know, kind of sought after. They were, they were, people were trying to hunt them down and kill them. 
And um, God intervened in this riot and, and really saved and spared the life of Paul and his, his missionary friends. But today we're going to pick up here with Paul in Ephesus. Um, the way I want to work through this sermon today is really to work through the first 16 verses of Acts chapter 20. Uh, as I work through them, I want to make several teaching observations. Uh, we'll bring it home at the end with some personal application points for you and for me. And then uh, all those things will revolve around this one big idea from the text that I want you to see today. And the main idea from our text today is this, is that God reaches the world through the work of the church, therefore we must be devoted to the church. God reaches the world through the work of the church, therefore you and I need to be devoted to the church. Um, Now, that's what we're going to see today, starting in Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Let's just start there as we read uh, what it says here. Acts 20 verse 1 says this, after the uproar ceased, which again is talking about that riot in Ephesus, it says, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. So here we have Paul in Ephesus. He pulls his disciples together. He encourages them. Then he heads out to Macedonia. So again, as we always do, like to put the map on the screen so you can kind of get our bearings. Ephesus is where the southeastern coast of the Aegean Sea and the North central coast of the Mediterranean Sea connect. Um, Macedonia actually though is kind of northwest of that across the Aegean Sea. And so Macedonia, as you can see on the map, includes cities that are mentioned in the Bible. Cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Um, Something to remember is that, you know, back in Paul's second missionary journey, that's when he first went to Macedonia. That's when he first preached in Philippi and in Thessalonica and, and in Berea. So that, that second missionary journey occurred about five years prior to what we're reading here today. So now he's choosing after five years to go back to Macedonia, visit the churches that assembled there. If you remember from last week's study, the apostle Paul had sent two guys on out in front of him to go to Macedonia, uh, Timothy and Erastus. And their job was to get the Macedonian churches prepared to contribute to an offering that Paul was collecting. He was collecting it to support the poor and hurting Jews in Jerusalem. And so after Erastus and Timothy prepared the way, eventually Paul was going to catch up to them, collect the offering, and then um, make travels back to Jerusalem. So um, in the meantime, while Timothy and Erastus moved ahead, Paul stayed in Ephesus. That's when the riot happened. Now, after the riots... Paul's deciding to leave Ephesus and head to Macedonia. That's verse one. Verse two says this. When he had gone through those regions, again, the regions around Macedonia, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So eventually Paul's gonna make his way down to Greece, but for now, we need to see that he's encouraging the churches in Macedonia. Those, again, those churches haven't seen or interacted with Paul for five years. A lot has gone on in those five years. The last time they saw him, he was kind of a, coming under persecution in their region. And so I imagine him saying, hey, let me tell you about everything that's unfolded since I left you five years ago. Hey, I had to flee from uh, Thessalonica, make my way to Berea. I had to flee from Berea, make my way down to uh, Athens. Uh, I got to preach in the area Areopagus and, and talk to the people about their statue to the unknown God. I, uh, I, I got to preach in Corinth for 18 months and minister there. And that's where I met these two wonderful people named Aquila and Priscilla. Let me tell you about their ministry. He gets to tell them about Apollos and the work that Apollos had been doing in Ephesus and in the other regions. He gets to tell them about how in Ephesus, um, 
Some crazy stuff happened in Ephesus, like exorcisms that went wrong, as we read over the past couple weeks. Uh, we, you know, maybe he's telling them about the, the, the book burning that happened in the public square and how many people who practiced idolatry were turning to Christ. And ultimately what he's sharing with them is that the gospel is prevailing in Asia Minor and Greece and Maced- in, in, in the other areas, just like it had in Macedonia. And so Paul spent time encouraging the, the churches by telling the testimony of God's work. Listen, testimonies about God's work encourage our hearts, don't they? You know, I, uh, I was reflecting back this week, you know, a month or maybe two months ago now, we wrapped up a sermon series here called Brand New. And in that sermon series, what did we talk about? Jesus changes people. And every week, what did we have? A testimony video of the way that God had worked to change somebody's lives. You know, we were encouraged by those testimony videos, weren't we? They were sweet. You know, they were uh, special. They were meaningful in our hearts. And uh, that's what it's like when you encourage somebody with telling them what uh, the Lord has been doing, how he's been working. At our members meeting each and every month, you know, one of the most encouraging, probably the most encouraging part of our members meetings is hearing the testimonies of the new members that God is bringing to our church and how the Lord has been working in them and changing them. It's been wonderful. It's, it's, led us as staff to start having conversations with staff and elders saying, hey, how can we get all these testimonies in front of the whole church? How can we let the church be encouraged by this? And so Lord willing, hopefully we'll make some changes down the road that you can be encouraged by the testimonies of more people in our church because it's encouraging to hear the testimony of what God has done. And that's what Paul is doing with these churches in Macedonia. He's encouraging them. Uh, it says that after being with them in verse two, it says he went to Greece. So if we can put our map back on the screen, you can see that straight south from Macedonia uh, is the area of Greece. That's where Paul went. That's where the church of Corinth was. Paul went there after being in Macedonia. Verse three says this, that there, again, being in Greece, he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So once again, we have what we've seen all through the book of Acts. The Jews start to plot to kill uh, Paul. They knew, they, they figured out, okay, he's going he's gonna to set sail out of Greece. He's going to go across the Aegean Sea. He's got to go down through the Mediterranean Sea to make it back to Syria. That's a really long boat ride. I'm sure we can figure out some way to get him overboard, okay? They're kind of plotting and scheming against him. Paul catches wind of this and he says, all right, forget it. I'm not going to take the boat. I'm going to go back up and retrace my steps and go where it's safer through all these churches that are back in Macedonia. So he starts to make his way back north. He would go back through places like Berea and Thessalonica, all those places we just saw on the map a few minutes ago. And that's because there in those cities, he had churches where he had friends and people that would look out for him, which helps us understand this long list of names that he mentions in the next uh, three verses here. So look at verse four. It says that Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, uh, and, and the Asians, uh, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and they were waiting for us at Troas. But we, uh, and by the way, notice that use of the word we and the use of the word us. It means that Luke, who's writing this letter, he's, he's with Paul. He's traveling with Paul at this time. It says, notice, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Paul is sending these guys, these names that he just lists, he's sending them on ahead of him again. 
It's likely that each of these guys were representatives from the local churches in the regions of Macedonia and uh, Asia Minor and other areas. And remember, they had all, all these churches had collected an offering, sums of money that they were giving to Paul to take to Jerusalem. It's likely that these guys were all representatives from those churches to come and help Paul carry that offering back to Jerusalem to say, hey, Jerusalem church, you've never met us, but it's through your ministry that we were started. And now we care about the, heart, the hurt and the difficulties that have come your way. So we love you and we want to give you this, this offering. So it's likely that these guys are representatives of those churches that are traveling with Paul. They're making a safe route for him to go. So Paul uncovers this plot in Greece for the Jews to try to kill him. He sends these guys up ahead. And this starts Paul's kind of retracing of his steps eventually to make his way back to Jerusalem. And we, again, we can just kind of look at a, a new version of the map kind of showing his path that we will unpack over the next several weeks as he starts to make his way out of Greece and he moves north to Macedonia and eventually comes back across the Aegean Sea over to Troas. And so in our story today, Paul is back in Troas. And we're going to see what happens here in Troas. So look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, On the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And we're going to talk about Paul's speech till midnight in a moment. But what I want you to see here, I, what we have here is an opportunity to make a few observations about the gatherings of the early church. Okay? Uh, first of all, I want, you to see three, I want you to see three things. Here's the first one. I want you to see how the early church gathered on the first day of the week. It says that they gathered on the, on the first day of the week. This is the earliest reference in scripture, to my knowledge, that talked about the church meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week, rather than on Saturday, the, the Sabbath day, which would have been the Jewish custom to assemble on Saturday. So you might ask the question, here we are 2,000 years later, we have church on Sunday. Like, why did that get started? How did, how did Sunday become the, the, the day rather than Saturday, the Sabbath day, like the Jews practiced? Well, here's why. It's because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And after he rose from the dead, with the Christians affirming him as the Messiah, they said, okay, we recognize that one of the ways he proved that he was the Messiah is by overcoming sin and death through his resurrection. So we're going we're gonna to honor Jesus Christ of Nazareth by gathering on the first day of the week, the day of his resurrection. And thus, from that time forward up until now, the church has been gathering mainly on the first day of the week for our worship services, our worship assemblies. Now, Here's a second observation that we can make about the early church. It says that they gathered on the first day of the week to do what? To break bread. Now, over the years, we've started to use this phrase, breaking bread, as kind of some common lingo to talk about communion or taking the Lord's Supper. But to break bread in the first century church was much different than our normal, our normal experience today. In the first century church, um, breaking bread together, taking the Lord's Supper was actually usually a long extended meal. Um, they sometimes called it the love feast. And people would gather for a, an extended dinner and sometime during that dinner, they would break a loaf of bread. They would bring out the, the cup of juice or wine and they would take the bread and the juice in remembrance of Christ's broken body and shed blood. And it was part of a, a bigger experience. It's, it's, you know, people would come and they would, eat a full meal. It's, it's why Paul would later write to the, uh, 
the Corinthian church and he would say, hey, some of you are coming here and you're drinking so much wine that, you know, you're getting drunk on it. You shouldn't do that. You know, um, it wasn't just a little, little cup. It wasn't just a little sip of grape juice like we have today. It was a, it was a big deal. The, sometimes I just start going on about things that actually aren't the point. This is not the point. <laughs> the point is not about how much food they ate at the Lord's Supper. The point is that the early church gathered for the sake of breaking bread. They, part of the reason why they assembled on the first day of the week was to remember the Lord Jesus through the Lord's Supper, through the taking of communion, through the breaking of bread. I'm emphasizing that to you to say, you know what? It was a priority for the early church. It wasn't an afterthought of, oh yeah, we haven't taken the Lord's Supper for a while. We better schedule that at the, you know, kind of a tag on on the end of one of our services. Like it wasn't an afterthought that way. It was maybe the main reason that they gathered. And so I'm mentioning that to you to say this. As you see our church progress and develop, you're going to see an increased emphasis on the taking of the Lord's Supper together. We're thinking about increasing the frequency of which we take the Lord's Supper. We're thinking about how we can emphasize meaningful ways to partake in the Lord's Supper together because we want to replicate this aspect of the early church where they really placed a, a high value on gathering together for remembering Christ's broken body and shed blood. So we, are, we see that as an observation from the early church. Here's a third observation from the gatherings of the early church. They gathered for preaching and teaching. They gathered here as Paul spoke to them on the Lord's day. He was teaching them, speaking to them. Talk, he was talking, they were listening. That's the way it worked. It, it says in our text, actually, that he even spoke till midnight. How many of you guys grew up in churches with uh, Sunday night services? Anybody? Anybody have them that went till midnight? Right? Me neither. We, all, well, we have a couple people who had some, okay? Um, very spirit-filled churches, apparently. But these, by the way, this is from now on when I preach long. People are like, what are you doing that for? I'm just going to point you straight to Acts 20. Like, this is my <laughs> biblical justification for long sermons, okay? But Paul goes and he preaches till midnight. And actually, the subsequent verses are going to tell us that he actually stayed up with them teaching and discussing things like all night long, right? So I know we live in a culture right now where it's increasingly popular to do short sermons. Here's, here's my heart behind that. I, when we shortchange people on God's truth, we shortchange people on their spiritual growth. So we must be a church that takes the necessary time to dig into God's word because we understand that this is where we come to know God better. This is where we learn what, what pleases him. This is where we come to learn what, who he is and what he's all about. It's through the teaching of God's word. So we don't need to shortchange the teaching of God's word. Um, an old preacher named J. Vernon McGee used to say this, sermonettes, produce Christianettes, right? I always thought that was so funny. Like, I don't want to be a Christianette, right? So how do we avoid becoming kind of this flimsy, weak, uh, wavering Christian? How do we, have, one of the ways is we devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word. And I don't just mean coming to church on Sunday, but you become a person who in your life values the teaching, the preaching, the study of God's word, and let me just say this, like Rachel and I talk about this from time to time. I am so grateful to be part of a church that has a high view of God's word. I am so grateful for that. Thank you guys. Let's keep doing that, you know? Let's keep valuing God's word together. And, and then pretty soon I'll be able to preach till midnight and everything will be good, right? So in the early, in the early church, there was preaching, teaching, Lord's Supper. They gathered on the Lord's day. 
They valued those things. May we long for those things. May we value those things as well. So let's see what happened here on Sunday night at this church meeting. Verse 8 says, There were many lamps in the upper room where, where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. I love how, you know, he already preached till midnight. Oh, now we're going still longer. You know, it says that being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So here we have the, the sad tale of the first kid who died falling asleep in church, right? Like a little, little story, personal story here. So a few months ago, a few... Somebody's afraid I'm going to call them out in church right now, aren't you? <laughs> a few months ago, um, I was, uh, you know, at Awana on Sunday night, and I started talking to my little five-year-old nephew named Tommy. And uh, Tommy, you know, he usually comes in church with his parents. He's in this service right now. And uh, I see Tommy at Awana, and his dad pulls up in their van next to me, and I roll down my window, and his window's down, and I'm like, hey, Tommy. What happened? Tell me about the sermon this morning in church, because he always likes to talk to me about the sermons. And uh, Tommy looked at me real funny, and he said, well, I don't know, I fell asleep. <laughs> to which I said, Tommy, don't you know about the story of the boy who fell asleep in church? <laughs> Tommy freaks out, his eyes get real big. His dad, Michael's just sitting in the front driver's seat, like shaking his head. <laughs> so... That's not the end of the story. So uh, about a month or so goes by, we move into this building, and after a church service gets done, Tommy and his family are hanging out over here afterwards, and I go up, and I'm trying to talk to Tommy after church, and he's, he's avoiding me, and he's not talking to me, and he's like going and sitting in this chair, and finally his dad says to him something like, Tommy, please speak to your Uncle Jason, and so Tommy looks up at me, and he says, I was just so tired today. I couldn't help it, Uncle Jason. <laughs> he felt bad about falling asleep in church. I have no idea why he would feel bad about that, of course. But uh, here we have in Acts chapter 20, the first story of a kid falling asleep in church. Every pastor looks forward to this passage coming up when we preach because we have biblical rationale to, to talk about everyone who falls asleep in church. Okay. And I, I actually do want to take just a moment and, and talk about this because I, I think there's a few important things to say. First of all, three things I want to share about falling asleep in church. First one is this. Everyone's like, oh no, what's going to happen? I first of all want to say thank you to some of you who work overnight shifts on Saturday night and still work hard and make your way to church on Sunday morning. I... Uh, a couple weeks ago, I heard about a woman in our church who worked, she works in a med medical facility. She had to work all night long. She came here. She had like an hour before church started and uh, she just parked her car in the parking lot and took a quick like cat nap before church could start. And then she comes in and she worships, you know? And uh, I think every once in a while, you know, we, people I think need to hear some encouragement. So if that's you and you work hard and you come on Sunday morning, thank you for coming. Uh, if you doze off or snore in the middle of the service, it's all good, right? We're not going to worry about that. I, I hope that you know that the Lord sees your heart to worship him. I hope that you are 
encouraged that your children are going to grow up watching you be devoted to the Lord's church. They're going to remember that. So be encouraged. Thank you for those of you who work late and come on Sunday. Second thing I want to say is this. Families in the room, attending church on the weekend is a weekday decision. Attending church on Sunday morning should be a Saturday night decision. Maybe an earlier, earlier than Saturday night decision. If, because we live in a culture where things are just too easy. If, if you wake up on Sunday morning and your general practice is, well, then, you know, I guess we'll just see how we feel on Sunday morning and then we'll come. Oh, you're almost never going to come to church. Um, and I just want to say to the heads of households in here, dads, heads of households, this is an area where you need to lead your family. You wouldn't kind of just wake up in the morning and decide, well, maybe I'll go to work today. Maybe the kids should go to school today. Yet, sometimes we often treat it that way when it comes to church. Dads, your job from Ephesians chapter 5 is to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we, as fathers, need to exemplify and teach and value um, the assembly of the local church. Teach our children to do the same. And, And let me just call out the obvious, like you guys are here on Sunday, so... I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir, but I also know this, life comes and goes in phases, and there's going to be times in your life where you wonder if this is worth it, where you get to, you know, other priorities may try to creep in. Remember, attending church on Sunday is a Saturday night decision. You need to prioritize it. Third thing I want to say is this. I get it that sometimes being bored in church is the preacher's fault, Okay, like sometimes it is. Okay, I, uh, I used to get really down on myself when I would preach and notice people dozing off in the sermons uh, until I read Acts 20 and then I'm like, oh yeah, people even fell asleep in Paul's sermons, so I'm good, All right? But I do think, honestly, um, I know it's hard to stay engaged in sermons where pastors preach as if they don't even believe that what they're preaching is important. And that's a problem. I remember listening to a, a guy preach one time, and he was preaching and literally yawned out loud in the middle of his own sermon. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Kind of got judgy in my heart on that guy, you know. I'll probably do it someday in my lifetime. It's somebody who can, can remind me of this. But here's the thing. I'm saying this to you because... I want you to pray for me and my heart's desire is to be a pastor who actually believes that the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God can change a life. I want to believe what I preach. I want to preach it in such a way that it comes across like I believe it. Uh, And I want every other man who fills this pulpit to be living a life where they are showing that they actually believe and cherish the word of God. Because here's the reality, like, I don't want to bore you to death with the, with the sermons, but, and the truth is that sometimes being bored with the preaching of God's word, sometimes that's on you, right? Sometimes it's also on the preacher. But when it comes to the life of the church, here's what I know. God is more concerned with our hearts being asleep toward him than he is with our bodies being asleep because we're tired. So I encourage you today to, if you find yourself struggling to 
be excited about God's word, eager to know him, I encourage you, ask the Lord, search my heart, see if there's anything wrong in me, Lord. And my commitment to you is that we will be a church that endeavors to preach God's word in a faithful, meaningful, helpful way, passionate way that helps you love Jesus and live for him. So that's my little sidebar about people falling asleep in church. Thank you for bearing with me. All right. Eutychus fell asleep during church. He fell out a window and then he died. Now look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us what happened next. It says, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, right? So all the youth pastors in the world, this is your justification for all-nighters and lock-ins. Very biblical, apparently. So they stayed up talking till daybreak and so departed. Verse 12 says, and they took the youth away alive and they were not a little comforted. So we have something here that's pretty interesting. Paul wraps his arms around this boy after he fell out of the third story, wraps him in his arms, kind of like the, the story of Elisha doing this with a dead boy in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. And the Lord works through Paul to bring this boy back to life. And Paul says, don't, don't worry. He's not dead. His life is in him, which would be pretty amazing for all to see. Don't you agree? You imagine if that happened in a church service here? Be amazing. It'd be pretty amazing for Eutychus, the boy, to experience, which, by the way, uh, you know what the name Eutychus means? The name means good fate or fortunate or what we might call today lucky. Now, I would say that uh, this boy is pretty lucky that the Apostle Paul was preaching that day because God worked through the Apostle Paul to raise the dead. But if it was like me or Scott Dixon or Bill Letcher or Phil Wing, like you die in a sermon, you're just done. Like, <laughs> right? All right, I'll, I'll stop all this now. So Paul goes back into the house and keeps teaching. Sorry, Scott, Bill, Phil. I put myself in that same category. Okay. Um, so he talks with them all through the night. God raises this boy from the, from the dead. People were comforted. Praise be to God that we have a Savior who... Uh, is himself the resurrection and the life that though we die, yet shall we live? That if we know Christ, we shall share in a resurrection like his. Aren't you glad that you serve a God who can raise the dead? Amen. I hope you know him. Verse 13. Verse 13 says, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land, and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. So Paul now is on the ship with these guys after he had sent them ahead earlier. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we touched at Samos. And the day after we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So basically what we have here is Paul and his guys are just moving quickly from city to city. And what is Paul's reason? He wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Now, we don't have an exact explanation for, in Scripture on why Paul was so eager to get there uh, by the, the Pentecost celebration. 
but we can assume some things. First of all, the Apostle Paul was uh, himself a Jew, so his heritage would have valued these Jewish festivals like Pentecost or what is also known as the the, uh, Feast of Weeks. We also know that at Pentecost, who was going to be there? A large gathering of Jews. And so what would Paul have wanted to do? He would have wanted to take advantage of this opportunity to preach Christ to this large gathering of Jews. But also, what do we know that he's been doing all along? He wanted to get back to Jerusalem to deliver this offering that the churches in the surrounding regions had taken up for uh, the support of the hurting church in Jerusalem. So as we read the breadth of Paul's teaching in the New Testament, I want you to pick up on something that Paul really cares about. He really cares that there's no division, that there's no elitism in the body of Christ. Where there had always been this kind of elitism from the Jews saying, we are the people of God, Paul has lived his life now to say, no, God is now opening a way for the Gentiles to be grafted in, to become part of God's family. And so this wall of division and hostility that had historically existed between the Jews and the Gentiles, it has now been torn down in Christ and it's being demonstrated in practical ways like, you know, the... Christians who had probably never met these believers in Jerusalem, they're giving of their money and their resources to help this hurting church. In other words, Paul is living out and teaching these different churches about the value of the body of Christ outside of their own little individual congregations. The global church. What did I tell you the big point of today's sermon is? The big point of, of today's text is that God reaches the world through the work of the church. So we must be devoted to it. We see Paul was devoted to it. We see his missionary friends are devoted to it. We see the people in the surrounding regions being devoted to their own churches, but also to the larger church. So what's the first takeaway for us? Devote yourself to the advance of the global church. Devote yourself to the advance of the global church. Paul and his friends were devoted. They were committed The other churches in the non-Jewish regions, these Gentile regions, they cared about the churches uh, that were made up of Jews because they had learned to value the, the broad body of Christ, the global church. So here's the thing. As you are growing in Christ, you're gonna find yourself doing the same. As I'm growing in Christ, I'm gonna find myself doing the same. There will be an increased care for the church in the world around us, not just our own little congregation. There will be a sensitivity to the needs of other churches around the world. You will care about the missionary work and the advance of the gospel here and abroad. It's, it's, it's why we kind of find encouragement in our hearts when we remember the things that Sharon shared from the stage earlier today about our team right now that's in Uganda, helping teach and equip these Ugandan churches on how to share the gospel. We can ex- be excited about that because we love the broader church. It's, it, it fills our hearts when we see ministries like Builders for Christ send over a thousand volunteers here last year to help us complete our project of building this building. Now it moves us to send teams from our church out to help the next church build theirs. Like some of you who are in this room right now, you attend our church sometimes, but then you go out and preach and teach or minister or serve in other ways in other churches uh, around. And I just want to say praise the Lord for that because it shows that you're having a heart for the global church We want to give our prayers and our money and our resources to support missionaries and church planters around the world. Because why? Because we care about the broader church. So guys, this is a value of ours. I hope it's a value of yours. 
We want to be a church that cares for the broader church, not just our congregation. That's why we pray for other churches on Sunday mornings. That's why we want to pay attention to the persecuted church and what's going on with it around the world. It's why we want to celebrate other churches where God's at work and where we see mighty awakenings and movements of God in our country and around the world. Because the truth is, church family, Jesus Christ didn't just die for University Baptist Church. He died for his whole church. Our family, the family of God. So devote yourself to the advance of the global church. Likewise, here's the second takeaway. Devote yourself to the assembly of the local church. Devote yourself to the assembly of the local church. We looked at the church in Troas. They were meeting on the Lord's day, committed to each other, hearing the word of the Lord, taking the Lord's supper together. They valued those things. And church family, I just want to call us, continue to do the same. We got to continue to do the same. We're in a culture that continually tries to downplay the importance of the Lord's church gathering on the Lord's day. When we come together, we encourage one another in the faith. We encourage one another through listening and helping each other apply the preaching of God's word. We remember Jesus together as we worship in singing and in song, when we celebrate baptisms together, when we take the Lord's Supper together. These are the wonderful values and the things that we get to do when we assemble together in the local church. It's why Hebrews tells us and instructs us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but do it all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. So don't forsake the assembly of the church. And again, I know you're here today, so I'm kind of preaching to the choir. Thank you for not forsaking it today. But there will be times when you will be tempted to give up on the assembly of the local church. And I want to make it clear, when I say don't forsake it, I don't, I don't mean that you miss a service here and there or you miss an event in the church from time to time. To forsake something means to intentionally reject to, to willfully abandon something. So the elderly shut-ins who have to stay home and the people who are injured and for whatever reason have to be home, like, I'm not talking about people who miss church for that. I'm talking about people who willfully abandon the church for lesser things. Here's my question for you today. Will you forsake? Will you neglect? Will you willfully abandon the assembly of the church? Will you willfully abandon these things that are so precious, like the Lord's Supper and the worship together? What would you abandon it? What, what is more valuable than that? Kids' sports? Extracurriculars? Extra money? a few extra minutes of sleep. The Lord's church is far too precious to be forsaken. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is gonna return for his church one day and the scripture calls us to be like a, br a bride preparing herself to be ready, pursuing righteousness and holiness and purity. So when Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together, it says, that we don't do that because we are to spur one another on to love and to good deeds. I need you to spur me on. You need others to spur you on. 
until the day of Christ's return. So devote yourself to the assembly of the local church. Guys, Jesus Christ devoted himself to the church. He loved her and gave himself up for her. Next week, we're gonna read this statement about how he purchased her with his own blood. Jesus loved the church, and if we are becoming like Jesus, then we will love the church. And I just wanna say this. I have close friends, family members, who have been wounded very deeply by the church. I get it. I also want to say this to you. Nobody was more wounded by church people than Jesus. He was bruised for our iniquities, crushed for our sins. By his stripes we are healed. Jesus loves the imperfect church. He loves the imperfect person that wounded you. He loves the imperfect you that wounded other people. He loves the imperfect you that wounded him. He died for you. So Jesus was devoted to the church. And when we grow to be more like Jesus, then we will grow in devotion to the church, globally and locally. God changes the world through the work of the church. So we must be devoted to it just like Jesus was. Let's pray. Just want to praise you right now in this moment, Lord Jesus, for your devotion to your sinful, broken, wayward church. Lord, um, give us your heart for the church. Give us your heart for this church. I pray that where there have been wounds among believers in this church today, that there would be forgiveness and restoration. I pray that where there are people who are maybe here today, but they are on the verge of walking away from being involved in the local church at all, I pray that today you would move them, give them the love of Christ in their hearts to stay committed. I pray, Lord, for Anybody here today who's kind of really unmoved by any of this teaching about the church because they're not part of it yet. I pray that today they may repent of their sin, trust in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen for the forgiveness of their sins, and that they would become part of your family, the precious church that you bought with your blood. So Lord, I thank you for this church family, thank you for the broader family of Christ and that you have made us your own and made us a part of it. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.